An interesting thing happened this last week. I, re, I, I discovered my dad's arms, my dad's uh, forearms and his back of his hands, and, and I discovered them in my, in my own arms. Because this is what my dad's arms would, hands, back of his hand. Okay, so it was work, right? And so like if you're doing work, you got to have work gloves. Now, truth be told, these are actually Tanya approved, even though she hasn't approved of me throwing them out. The reason why they're Tanya approved is that even if they hit you, they're soft. See, like I can like throw it really hard at you, Pete Gangle. I thought you would be a little quicker on that take up. So, okay. So anyway, so my dad, this is what my dad's for. He had hairy forearms and, and, uh, and he had bigger hands than I do. His hands were about that much longer in each side, but he, this, these are his favorite. Now, these aren't actually his gloves. Okay. These are the kind of gloves that he, uh, uh, enjoyed. Look at that. There's some like good grabs. I love having a bag full of stuff to throw. It's just so exciting. Okay, here we go. I'll try to get one. See? See how soft they are when they hit you? Isn't that nice? Proved? Does it? Yeah, I still shouldn't do it. Just, oh, I just love this because I figure I'm not going to get in trouble till later. Oh, someone's got to get that one. Sorry about that middle finger flipping out of that glove. No offense. Really? Really, no offense at all. I really, okay, so at any rate, so my dad loved gloves, right? And these are the gloves that he would use, that going back there, when he would cut wood in the fall. And uh, we would put up between 20 and uh, 25 quart of wood every year to heat our home with, which oddly enough is roughly the amount that fell in our driveway this last week. And we have a couple more like that. At any rate, okay, where are we at? Okay, work gloves, forearms. My dad's hands were bigger, but this is what they look like. Oh, how sweet. That's so nice to hear. I'll get back. Oh, bounce. Okay, where are we at? Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 7, 1032 is the page. Starting with verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. If you have your work gloves, make sure you're prepared, but not till later. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Okay, now, something that I really want you to be in tune to, because this verse is absolutely magic. This verse is absolutely beautiful. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will, be, will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd." And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Don't fear a diverse crowd. It's a decidedly different perspective than one that excludes those people that don't look like me. 
and it's a decidedly different perspective than one that excludes those who don't talk like me. The picture that we have, okay, remember from last week, okay, were those that are sealed, okay, the 144,000, the, the here, okay, last week was here, this is what's being described, 12 times 12,000, those who have been sealed by God, those whose faith are protected by God, they have persevered. This is the look. Beale argues that chapter 7 talks about the same group of people in two different ways. The first way, in the first seven verses last week, here, here is what being described, listen, 12 times 12,000, this time look. And this is the component pieces, if you will, of the imagery from last week, the 12 times 12,000. And it represents every nation, all the tribes, all the people, all the languages. If you think heaven is just going to be people that look like you, it's not. And if you think heaven is just going to be people that talk like you, it's not. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language will be represented in this grand assembly at the end of all things. In addition to many things, the book of Revelation is perhaps the greatest text in the Bible that we have to to really give us a framework for missions work. Reaching out to those who don't know Jesus, whether they exist in our own backyard or a third of a world away. Every tongue, every people, every language, every nation. The responsibility, the work that lies ahead. They sing another song. Coleman calls it the song of salvation. Salvation literally could be rescue. So rescue belongs to our God. God has rescued us. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then an antiphonal um, uh, song, antiphonal amen, Coleman argues. If you want to know what antiphonal means, look it up on your own time. It's kind of a cute little word. We kind of do it once in a while here at Timberwood Church. This amen that is blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor. The antiphonal amen is a different group of people from the initial group, okay? So there are two groups of people, one crying out saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. This is this mass of witnesses from every tongue, every tribe, every language, And then the angels and the elders and the four living creatures give this antiphonal amen, this antiphonal response to what has been said. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then this notion of the absolute best hope. The question, who are these people? And John's like, what are you asking me for? You know. You know who they are. And the response from one of the elders is that these are individuals who have come out of the Great Tribulation. Now, this is where we come into, uh, well, probably our most um, engagement with dispensational theology, because in about the 1800s, there was this theological view that sprung up. I think in part because we as Americans tend to not to like to suffer, 
okay? At any rate, and so this idea of how does the tribulation affect and dispensational theology argues that before the tribulation, most of it does, some of it mid, some of it post, but before the tribulation, the church is raptured out of the world, okay, and they don't have to experience the great tribulation. The challenge with that mindset is that you have to understand the very first people that would have read these words would have read these words and said, tribulation, yeah, we get it. Because they were reading these words under the reign of Domitian, okay? Domitian was a Roman emperor last few years of the first century, and really, he did some cool things for Rome. He set Rome well up for the second century, okay? But he also did some really, really bad things. And he was a really, really bad guy, especially to followers of Jesus Christ. He was ruthless in his establishment of the ancient practices and religions of Rome. And to a group of people who said, we will not bow before Caesar, he was not kind. The people in the first century reading this book for the first time would have said, we're in it right now. Tribulation doesn't get any worse than giving your life for Jesus Christ. In fact, I think if we carefully look at Christian history, we would understand that throughout the ages, there has been tribulation. That the great tribulation is not one period of time, but multiple periods of time throughout the time after Jesus leaves planet Earth. Just think about it. Throughout the ages, throughout the times. Now, we, we escape this perspective a little bit, right? Because we live where we live. And, and really, we live with a great deal of peace and security and freedom. But you will have no trouble convincing a follower of Jesus Christ who lives in sub-Sahara Africa, who had members of his family hacked to death, because they were followers of Jesus Christ. You would have no trouble convincing a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, who lives in the Middle East, who has suffered tremendously and lost their home and lost their lives for the cause of Christ, that the tribulation has touched them. You have no argument with a Haitian Christian or a Christian who lives in Southeast Asia. And perhaps if we're honest, if we understand great tribulation to be roughly synonymous with great suffering? Maybe right here. Now, I know that's a little bit of a departure, right? But the suffering that exists inside of us, in some of our lives, understand that that the tribulation or the tribulation period throughout Christian history has been a test of faith. that through that suffering, through that pain, there has been those who have continued to follow Jesus Christ and those who have departed from following Jesus Christ. That there almost seems to be a bit of suffering that seeks to separate us from the God who created us and redeems us. 
And I would say yes, in some of our lives, more than others. There's a suffering that threatens the vitality of our faith, that threatens the perseverance of our commitment to God. This last week, I get woken up, right? 3 a.m., thunderstorm. I like to sleep through thunderstorms. No big deal. I'm enjoying the lightning and the sound of thunder. And then all of a sudden, I hear an unnatural sound. So I look outside of the bathroom window, and there is just a whole bunch of leaves and trees where there shouldn't be. And then I walk out the front, and there's a likewise. And then I turn to Lakeside, and I can't even find the lift. And, and, and the canopy on the pontoon feels like it's been pulled back like you'd open up a can of nuts. Now, Christians, okay, are taught to immediately go to a, and maybe it's not just Christians, maybe it's folks who live in northern Minnesota, Hardy Stock, were taught to instantly go to, well, if no one was hurt, the rest of the stuff can be replaced. And so we say that, right? And it's encouraging to us, kind of. Okay, or we'll have people who will say that to us in the attempt to be encouraging to us. They'll be like, well, as long as there was no loss of life, you know, everything else can be replaced. And I get that. I even said that. And then when I hear the words, I'm like, but, but it still hurts. And when I looked out at 6 o'clock in the morning and got going on Thursday morning, I had a pit in my belly, and I was really, really sad. And it was a huge buzzkill. And you would say, oh, John, it's all stuff. If you were a better follower of Jesus Christ, the stuff wouldn't matter. And you're probably right. At the same token, I view my home as a place of refuge, a place where my family is safe. And that changed a little bit. I view the things that I have as gifts from God, things that he has allowed me to enjoy. And so, yeah, I think suffering happens at all sorts of levels. Am I comparing my suffering to Haitian Christians that wonder where they're going to get fresh water? No, I'm not in any way, shape, or form. It's on an entirely different scale. But in all of our lives, I think suffering and tribulation exists, and the reality is it exists in some ways to either purify our faith or separate us from Jesus Christ. In the pathway, you might ask some questions. The pathway to understanding this role of tribulation, this pathway of understanding suffering in our lives, to come face-to-face -face with the reality. How much does it hurt? What does the pain remind us of? What does the pain make us long for? How does the pain create a sense of belonging? And how is the pain redeemed? Back to the text, this great tribulation, this tribulation that we would argue has happened throughout human Christian history. Do you ever wonder what would happen if great tribulation came to the United States of America? Do you think the grace of God would be strong enough in our lives to sustain us? Or perhaps the trappings of wealth 
and affluence and political power have us so distracted that the side of evil knows that enough Christians are thus distracted in the Western Hemisphere that there exists little danger of them becoming authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Now, that may not jive with some of you in your understanding of tribulation, but indulge me for just a moment. If tribulation is used by the evil one to separate us from God, then I kind of think anything that separates us from God could be tribulation. And if the Great Tribulation is a period of time in which people's faith is tested and some fall away while others persevere, perhaps then the tribulation could come in the midst of prosperity. Perhaps the things that we think that are so valuable are the things that really keep us from following God. There's another thing going on in the text. Remember last week we talked about the wrath of the Lamb, the fact that those who are sealed, who are found in Christ, okay, when all the crazy stuff is going on on planet Earth, are both protected from evil, i.e. they won't lose their salvation, and B, they're also protected from the wrath of the Lamb, and that you want to be on the right side of that equation. Compare that image, that warrior Lamb image, with what we have in verse 17. For in the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. This is Revelation's version of Psalm 23. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We have a remarkably different picture of said warrior lamb. The lamb as shepherd. The lamb that looks down and sees the suffering of those who are found in him and says, here, with my thumb, let me just get that and wipes away our tears. So what do we do with this? Well, we got work to do, right? So those of you that have gloves out there, um, you know, unfurl your gloves, roll up your shirt sleeves, okay, because that's what we do when we work hard. We like bare forearms. Look at, nice looking forearm. A lot of people mistake this for like mosquito bites. They're not. These are actually muscles. Okay, they're not mosquito bites. Okay, and we put okay, and then we put our gloves on, right? So what work needs to be done? Okay, well, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but let's just focus on three areas, okay? First of all, the crowd. Okay, there's an enormous crowd, okay? Every tongue, every tribe, every language, every people, every nation being represented. Those are all names of people. That crowd is made up of names of individual identities, and every name is another spot filled. Every name is another fulfillment of the vision that John had. Every name is one more person who is eternally connected to God. You and me, we have the potential to make that kind of difference in someone's life. Each of us know people who don't know Jesus Christ, who are not in Christ as of today. There's work to be done. 
because the opportunity to introduce a friend of yours, a friend of mine who doesn't know Jesus Christ, is the opportunity to make an eternal difference in their life. The stakes could not be higher. They could not be more significant. Second thing in the area of work. It's a reality that there are hard times ahead. So the day before the storm, Tom and I had this great idea that we would ride our bikes to Aiken. So it's an 80-mile round trip, okay? And so uh, we get to Aiken. We got 40 in the bag. And we know, we know that the easiest 40 miles are behind us. The hardest 40 miles are ahead of us. The easy miles are the ones we've already done. We know that there are hard times ahead. Cleaning up our place on Thursday, a friend of mine asked me, why do bad things happen? And we've had this discussion here before, right? Causation, I have no idea. But I do know that when bad things are happening, I know that in the hard times that lie ahead for all of our lives, those times allow the very best of who God created us to be to rise to the surface. Even people who don't give a thought of who God is in a moment of crisis in their neighborhood are willing to strap on the gloves and work and demonstrate the absolute best attributes of God of being willing to be gracious and helpful and encouraging and supportive. And it's not that bad things happen for this reason or that reason, but I see it again and again and again in the midst of bad things happening in our lives. It allows us to be the absolute best of who God has created us to be. The last work is perhaps overshadowed by nothing. It's the work of hope. The hope that we have. The hope of that day when Jesus lifts our chin and with his thumb goes whoop and the tears are gone forever. It's the business of hope. It is the activity of hope. It is the belief of hope. And we are to be in the business of hope. We are to be busy with the work of hope in the lives of those that exist in our sphere of influence. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you today. grateful to be in your presence. Father, grant us hope. Let us know how extraordinary your love is. Let us know that even in the midst of suffering, you enable us to persevere and you invite us to persevere. Father, draw our hearts to you. Let us be busy with the work of hope in our lives.
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The ushers will gather the morning offerings. Change.